Thank you, Jesus. I think the title we have on this in the schedule is Exodus from Babylon and the Quest to Rebuild Jerusalem. That's a fairly broad theme that I think we've been talking about already quite a bit and we'll continue on probably more. Um, but I, I guess I think of it in terms of what we just heard this morning um, about salvation being a covenant relationship with God. And if we look at the, the archetypes in Scripture of what Babylon represents and what Jerusalem represents, the difference is covenant in many ways because Babylon, in Revelation, we see Babylon as the mother of harlots, and yet Jerusalem represents the bride the, that is the mother of us all. And so uh, you remember what the word Babylon means? Confusion. Or we could say adulteration, where we are mixing things together without regard for the design or the order of God or his, uh, his plan, but instead we are mixing it together with the world, with our own ideas, with pagan traditions, what have you, and we, with this amalgamation we can call Babylon. So when we speak about leaving Babylon, about the exodus from Babylon, we're talking about coming out of the confusions that have beset the church and back into right relationship and right order that God has that brings life and peace. So that's kind of the theme here. Um, and I want to talk about, um, maybe as a beginning here, I want to talk about the man to whom God gave the design for the original temple in Jerusalem. And we, could, we know that was King David. So David is a remarkable person uh, in the scriptures. I don't recall that there's anyone else that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. There is something in David that is longing for relationship with God and longing to see God be glorified through his life, and not just through his life, but through the whole life of the people of Israel. Wouldn't you say that would characterize David's life? So even when he's a young child, um, well, I don't know how old he was, but he's a, he's a shepherd caring for his father's sheep. And if we take Jesus' words, David was not a hireling, was he, that fled when the enemy came, David cared about the sheep. He cared about the flock and so would come against the lion or the bear or what have you. This was his frame of mind. And God loved him and chose him out from all of his other brothers that may have seemed more gifted or more qualified or more handsome or, or more experienced. David was the one that was singled out and chosen by God because as he said, as Samuel said, the Lord does not look on outward appearance, he's looking at the heart. And so we see that heart in David when this threat rises up against the people of Israel, and his name is Goliath, and, and David comes down to, to visit his brothers at the battlefield, and Goliath is out there taunting, and everyone is afraid, in spite of the rewards that are promised, everyone is afraid to go and confront this enemy and what is the problem here? Well, they're worried. They're, they're controlled by fear, as we discussed yesterday. They're controlled by the desire for self-preservation. They don't have the faith. And yet David is possessed by a burden that transcends his natural fears, right? And so David's approach is not, <clears throat> oh, I think I could do it because I have the right weapons or whatever. His approach is informed by his burden for the people of Israel. So he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? Is there not a cause in Israel? And so this burden that burns in his heart is what drives him to say, we're going to find a way to deal with this uncircumcised Philistine because God is going to have a people. He's going to have a place on the earth that brings glory to his name. So David is, um, he is exemplary in his, in many ways, in his honor for God, in his honor for God's 
hand at work in the world. He knows that God has chosen him, and yet when he's in this conflict with Saul, um, Saul is trying to kill him. David has every reason to just bypass that and set himself up as king, and yet he says, do not touch the Lord's anointed. He has an honor for the fact that Saul had been set in place as king. So we see David waiting for the Lord to accomplish his purpose. He is unwilling. He, he makes mistakes, yes. But we see in his heart an unwillingness to, to take into his own hands and do the Lord's work for him the way that David thinks is good. Okay, and he, he, he learns some lessons about that that we will, we'll talk about in a minute. But we see this honor in his heart that says, this is the Lord's house. As his son would later write in the Psalms, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So David is the man who has been given, who is, is given the design, the blueprint, gathers the materials for the temple that his son will build. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he has this burden that the house of Israel, the Lord's house, and this becomes represented by the temple that is built, will be manifest that the glory of God can be in the people of Israel. So he, so David himself writes in Psalm 69, starting in verse 7, for your sake, I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has consumed me. Think of all the things that David went through, being rejected by his brother's rejected by his own sons, rejected by the people of Israel, so many places in his life, he bears the reproach because of the zeal for the house of God that is upon him. In English, the words zealous and jealous used to be the same word, actually. They only got differentiated in fairly recent history. So... Um, when we think of zealous, we think of someone who's very enthusiastic, who is uh, fervent in their feelings about something, and enthusiastic in their actions, and that's a proper uh, definition. But the word jealous is closely connected. Someone who is jealous is someone who is guarding something that is their own, right? So it can mean protective, it can mean watchful or careful or vigilant, or mindful. So David is zealous for the Lord's house. He is, he, it, it consumes his thoughts. It consumes his feelings. He wants to see the house of the Lord exalted. Is there not a cause in Israel? So when we look at the, the difference that we just discussed about Jerusalem the name means the city of peace, and Babylon, which means confusion, we see one of the main differences between these is that in one we have the rest that comes from harmony, in the other we have the confusion that comes from disorder. Okay, so there's a very different feeling, if I may borrow the piano for a moment. There's a lot of tones available to me on this piano that I could choose to play, but the order in which I put them is going to make a big difference in the feeling that you get from it, right? So if I do something like this, you might feel restful. If I do something more like this, you're not quite as restful. I'm playing the same thing, but the order of it is different. There's a word in Hebrew that I've always sort of enjoyed Balagan. <laughs> I like the word balagan because it sounds like what it is somehow. I don't know why, but to my American ears, it just, you know what it is before someone tells you. This is, there was this balagan going on. You, you know what the problem was. It almost sounds like Babylon, come to think of it. Anyway, so Jerusalem is the city of peace, which we find... Ironic, don't we, when we look at natural Jerusalem, because if there's anything but peace, there's a lot of tension. But the Jerusalem above 
is the city of peace. Amen. Where everything is brought into order, everything is brought into conformity to God's design. So when we talk about leaving Babylon and rebuilding Jerusalem, what we're talking about is rediscovering the order of God that He has designed to bring us life. Brother Asi was talking earlier about the principles that God set into the, in motion in the world and that these are all principles of life. Okay, so if you think about that on the most basic level of a, a living human body, and you all know that where we're going with some of this when we talk about the temple, we're talking about the body, we're talking about the church, we're talking about the configuration of relationships in the house of, that is the house of God, that is the church. It's the people of God and how they're put together. And so when we use that body analogy... You think about it, well, the way the body is put together is as a framework for life. So you can't tamper with the design of that body without destroying the life. You can't just say, well, you know what, I think we'll, um, I don't think we need a stomach, or I don't think, um, you know, at this point, why don't we just attach the arm over here instead? It, 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 it might look better there, or whatever. You, you cannot tamper with the design of the body. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, okay? God designed us in our mother's wombs. Who knows his ways? The body is a complicated thing, and yet the reason for all of this careful construction is that life might exist, and the principles that are at work in the universe are such that without proper order, life is not possible. We end up with defragmentation, which is death, decomposition. The Lord has composed the body just as He wills, we're told in Corinthians. Amen. But decomposition is what leads to death. So whenever God starts talking to us about how He wants us to be fit together or how He wants to construct the temple, whether that's in relationships between people or whether that's in the relationship of the pieces of the truth, the foundations of truth that He would lay in our lives, the way those things come together and the accuracy with which we approach them, the carefulness, the zealousness, we might say, with which we approach them is important because of God's heart for us that we might find life. So in our pursuit of life, what we're saying is we are pursuing the design of God. Think about the Old Testament for a minute. You know, have you ever wondered... There is a lot of material in this book. When we go through and we read in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers and many other places, there is a lot of the Bible that is devoted to all of these details about exactly how to make certain items for the temple and uh, exactly how to proceed with certain washings and exactly how to make certain sacrifices and on and on and on are all these prescriptions that we see of detailed instructions. Now, we don't typically spend a lot of time in those things today going over them and because we have an understanding that these things are fulfilled in spiritual realities, many of them, okay? But at the same time, what... What is all of that saying to us? Because it was the Word of God. It was given to shape and mold a people and prepare them with a Judaic mindset, we talked about yesterday, that would cause them to understand with what attitude God can be known, with what attitude we must have to come into a saving relationship with our Creator and our Designer. It was to teach the people of Israel respect and care and honor for God's ways in order that He might bring them to life. Thank you, Jesus. So we read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the whole book of Hebrews goes into a lot of, of, of these things and what they're about, but it says... They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. 
So this is New Testament emphasizing to us that Moses was warned to make everything according to a pattern given by God. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. But he's telling us all of this for a reason, that there is still a covenant and there are still patterns given from heaven that these physical things were types and shadows of that we might learn from to inform our attitudes towards God's patterns. Is there a lesser standard in the New Testament? Do we need less care, right? God has gotten, he's gotten rid of all of that complicated stuff that people had to be really careful about, and now we are free to basically live however we want to because Jesus has done it all for us. Hopefully you're not okay with that after this morning. My goodness. <laughs> okay, the freedom that he has given us in Christ is a freedom that comes through the love that says legalism doesn't even get me halfway there. Okay, so the carefulness that is now, it's not that I am no longer careful. I no longer pay any attention to how to do anything or how to relate to people or, or how God might put together his church. It's not that I no longer care about it because the law has been wiped out. It's that now I have been invited into a relationship of love that causes me to care even more. This is something in my heart when I see what God has done in the way that he has opened through the veil into the holy of holies. This is something that I am now internally inspired to care about all the more and to respect God's design. Hebrews 2 Chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay all the more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we've got to pay attention. The Bible speaks a lot about things. Be, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about let everything be done decently and in order. And in the same chapter it says, For God is not a God of balagan. Probably doesn't say that, but disorder. God is not a God of disorder, or some translations say a God of confusion, but a God of peace. So God cares about every area of our lives. Amen. There is a tendency amongst the, the modern church to fragment your obligations to God to this little space on Shabbat or this, this little area of your life and to think that the rest of it doesn't matter because we're free in Christ. But can we agree that God should have a say in all of it? That if He's not Lord of everything, He's not really Lord in our lives. That if He cares about it, so should we. An example that I love, that um, I believe Brother Blair is the one I first heard share it, is um, that at just at the moment of the most incredible event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it tells us that when they came and they found the empty tomb, they saw his grave clothes folded and the cloth around his head separate and folded by itself. Jesus has just risen from the dead, but he's sure to make his bed before he goes on his way. We love to tell our children that example. <laughs> God is a God of order. <laughs> he care if he had time to make his bed <laughs> after he rose from the dead, you have time to make your bed when you get up in the morning. Okay, so this is an understanding, this is, this is informing our attitude towards life that God has given us, that we care about it. Now, what are we talking about? Are we talking about becoming very principled and fastidious and overly polite and perfectly prim and proper? Is that what we're talking about when we talk about the order of God? Someone said no. You could probably discern from my tone that I would also say no. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about, okay? We're not talking about a, a particular 
perfect politeness all the time. Consider Jesus going into his father's house. Jesus is not particularly polite when he discovers that they have turned the house of prayer into a place of commerce. So we see Jesus turning over tables, making a whip and driving the animals out. What is he doing? Is he not restoring order to the house of God? He's putting the house of God back in the way that it should be. Okay? And what did the disciples say after he did this and everybody marveled at it? They remembered that it was written, zeal for his house shall consume him. It mattered to Jesus. And it didn't just matter that there's a principled thing that we need to get fixed because we're all about details. He felt it in his heart that if things are not right in God's house, his glory and his presence and his honor are not going to be there. Amen. And it is for our good that we bring order to the house of God. Thank you, Jesus. And of course, we see Jesus, you know, the disciples are eating with unwashed hands and there's all these violations of the Sabbath and such that Jesus does not seem particularly concerned with all of this perfectly proper keeping of the law in a legalistic way, he is concerned about right relationship, which is what right order is really all about. God is concerned most of all with the right order in relationships. Now, we can see that throughout the Bible in some very uh, heavy, disturbing examples, actually. When we look at, for example, uh, Aaron and Miriam, and they start feeling some sibling rivalry about Moses. And Moses says, why does he have a, a more important place than we do and such? And God treats this very seriously. Miriam is struck with leprosy. God says, she shall be as one in whom a, a father has spit in the face of his daughter. There is a very strong rejection of someone who says, ah, well, who says that the relationship should be like this? Let's, let's change that a little bit. God reserves the right and the honored place for ordering His people according to His own design, and our place is to submit to it. We see it when Aaron's sons take it upon themselves to burn what the Bible calls unauthorized fire in the tabernacle. Amen. They're Aaron's sons. They're part of the priesthood, and yet they, they got things a little out of order. Amen. And the fire from heaven consumes them for this mistake. When Korah challenges Moses and says, oh, the whole congregation is holy, the earth swallows them up. King Uzziah, later on, we see him. He's the king of Israel, and yet he takes upon himself a function that was given to the priests. So even the king in God's plan is not allowed to redefine his role according to his own desires. So he goes in to do a good thing. He's going to go burn sacrifices to God in the temple. But God didn't call him to that function. And so we see Uzziah struck with leprosy for the rest of his life, for his infraction of God's order. And it's been pointed out that Isaiah's prophecy, uh, one of Isaiah's prophecies begins with, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and His glory filled the temple. There's something about putting to death those, that desire of ours to rearrange God's plan that allows for glory to return. Thank you, Jesus. And then there's an example in the life of David that uh, expresses the same thing. So the Ark of the Covenant has been uh, captured by the Philistines. Um, it is then, of course, returned to the Israelites. I'm sweeping over a lot of history here. It's returned to the Israelites because uh, every time they look inside of it, people get sick and die and all these things are happening. And so the Philistines say, you know, on second thought, we don't really know how to handle this. Why don't you guys take it back? But the ark gets parked. It's not in its rightful place in Jerusalem. And this is the ark is representing the focal point of God's word, of his presence, in the, to the people of Israel, David has a burden. David wants to see this ark return to its rightful place. He wants to see the glory of God manifested in the city of God, which is Jerusalem. Okay, And so he wants to bring the ark back. 
And yet, when he does so, they, they put it on this new cart that they built, and they, they bring it up, and everything is going great until the oxen stumble, and this man named Uzzah, with good intentions, it seems, he see, he's afraid the ark is going to fall off the cart, and so he puts out his hand to steady it. And yet, when this happens, he dies. He is struck down and dies. And so this, this whole wonderful idea of good intentions to, to bring the glory of God back is stalled by this incident. And David is wondering, why does this happen? He, he's very troubled by it. And yet uh, he comes to an understanding that zeal is not just enthusiasm or good intentions. Zeal must also include the honor for exact pattern given by God. And so we see that he, in 1 Chronicles 15 and verse 12, he speaks to the Levites. It's really kind of a rebuke because they should have been involved in this and they weren't. He says to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Good intentions are not enough. We've got to be in submission to God to find his proper order. David eventually, after this, brings the ark up into the tabernacle. And yet even there, he's not satisfied. He wants to build a house for the presence of God, a house for the ark. Why, why is he doing this? Because it had been said long ago that there was going to be a place for his name in Jerusalem. So, um, when David goes to do this, to build this temple, we know the Lord doesn't let him do it because he's been a man of, of war. He shed much blood. And the Lord gives him a promise. Listen to the messianic overtones in this promise. First Chronicles 17, verse 11. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you, and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." Amen. Now we know, we are, we've already talked about it yesterday and even today, that this all that's happening here with this temple is a foreshadow of what is to come. And this obviously is prophesying about Jesus and the house that he is going to build that is going to abide forever. But what we're, what, the reason we're looking at this temple in the natural is to learn, as the book of Hebrews tells us, what we can learn from the copies and the shadows of these things, of the heavenly things. So, what is the purpose of this temple? Does God need the temple? A couple are saying no. Does God need the temple? We need the temple. <laughs> the temple is God's gracious provision to us that there can be a, an embassy on earth, that there can be an access point on earth to the presence of God. So the temple is established for this purpose, the connection point between heaven and earth. Now, in Deuteronomy 12, while they were still coming into the land, the Lord had told them that there's going to come a time when you come into the land, you shall no longer do as you are doing here today, each one according to his own understanding. But when you come into that place, there's going to be a place that I'm going to choose. Okay, a place I'm going to choose and I'm going to put my name there and my presence shall be there. And to that place, you must go. So God is speaking to them about 
a, a geographical place that they must go if they are going to honor him and encounter his presence. Are you putting together the connections already? Many of you are. You've heard some of this before. Hopefully all of us are. The place of his name. We just talked about marriage as taking on the name of God, as coming into relationship with God. Okay? So the temple is the place where God's name is going to be. His name is synonymous with his presence, with his authority, with his power to save. Okay? So if you wanted to come into the presence of God, you were going to have to come to the place of his name. Now, we know the sin of Jeroboam, when he came into the picture, was that he told the people, you don't have to go there. He appealed to their own pride and laziness and whatever. He was really concerned about himself. But he appeals to theirs and he says, I think it's too much for you to go all the way up to Jerusalem, to that temple that is called by his name. We can do it a different way. Let's set up some high places. We can have some good intentions. We can have some good praise and worship or whatever. And we'll just, we'll just reconfigure this a little bit, but we're still going to worship God. But you don't have to go to the place called by his name. You don't have to be that careful about it. So the temple is for us. It's for us. The reason for the form, the reason for the structure, the reason for the design and the order is for us that we might find life. So you remember yesterday, Brother Asi read to us this, this uh, scripture from Ezekiel 43, where he says, Son of man, describe to them the temple. And if they are ashamed, then show them the whole design, the entrances, the exits, the form, the structures, the patterns of the temple. Brother Asi has often said, what is, ask the question, what is the difference between a pile of stones and a temple? The difference is, is the order. The difference is that you may have all of exactly the same pieces, but in one, they are configured according to a design, and the other, they're a pile of rocks. Okay? And so, what is it about design that our flesh doesn't like? Submission. Submission. You can't choose it. Well, you can try, but if you want life, we already talked about that. You're not going to have life. And we don't like that. Design implies authority. It, does, it implies that there is a Lord, there is a designer that we have to submit to. That's why people don't prefer to believe in creation as intelligent design. They prefer to believe in evolution. Stuff just kind of happens. You know what kind of happens? Balagan. That's what kind of happens. When there's no design, there's no designer. But people don't like the implications that if there is a creator, if he has a plan and he has a purpose, then I have to conform to that, then I have to submit to that, and I don't like that because I want to be as God. Amen? I want to choose for myself how things are going to be and how things are going to go. It requires submission to a pattern. So the constraints of the form and design of the temple are there on purpose. God put them there so that we cannot enter his presence, so that no flesh can glory in his presence. So these patterns that he gives us, they are to humble the flesh. And we, if we saw his design for life for us, we would say, thank you, Jesus, for a new and living way, amen, that still has patterns that still humbles the flesh, that can bring us into the very presence of God. Because what present, prevents our own salvation, what prevents our own relationship with God, is the flesh. Amen. So God puts together patterns that humble that flesh. This is the cultivation of the Jewish people, isn't it? This is the mindset God is trying to, when He's working on these people for centuries, to prepare them to receive the Messiah. He's cultivating a mindset that everything matters, 
that everything has to be done God's way, that we've got to be conscious of God in everything that we do, that we must conform to Him and not vice versa. Amen. We're not going to be saved by trying to conform God to our own image. We're going to be saved by becoming like Him. Dan, yes, sir. It just strikes me, perhaps for the first time, the parallel between Uzzah being struck dead and Ananias and Sapphira. Amen. You know, the, at the founding of the church, when somebody thought they could break the order of God, the pattern of God, and lie to what they thought was simply an authority figure, Peter, mm-hmm. God, did not, God did not smile on that. He brought the same exact seriousness with which he takes the new covenant temple is at least as great as the seriousness with which he viewed the old covenant. Amen. When we see the counterfeit of the temple of God, we could look to the Tower of Babel. Okay? Here's another monument that's going to be constructed according to man's design. Why were they building that? to make a name for themselves, to exalt their own identity and their own self-deification project. Okay, and so we see that this is put, it's put together with bricks instead of stones. These are man-made components. It's shaped by art and man's devising, we could say. They used pitch instead of mortar, which was a petroleum product. You can go off on the implications of this. It was a product of death and decomposition, like oil is. Amen. And it was called the Tower of Babel, Babylon, confusion, adultery. So the temple is the place of consecration, of separation, of sanctification, of cleansing, of atonement, of forgiveness. It's the place of salvation. To that place you must go. When we build according to the pattern, glory results. That's what happened in Exodus 40 in the tabernacle, verse 33. So Moses finished the work according to design. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It happens again when the temple is constructed according to design. You know these passages, so I won't read them again. Jesus said something similar when he said, Father, I have finished your work. Now glorify your name. When there is completion according to pattern, glory results. We want to see glory in the church. We want the presence of God. We want to see His Shekinah glory come. Then we should pay attention to His design. If we would be careful to do everything according to the pattern given from heaven, glory will result. We say, well, this feels, this is laborious, this is painstaking, this is uncomfortable. Amen. We fix our eyes on the glory that is to result. And so the chiseling and reductions of the flesh that take place seem as nothing to us if we value the glory of God in His house. Thank you, Jesus. When glory fills the house, what happens? No flesh can enter. What is the glory of God? It's the presence of God, or Brother Blair gave us a teaching years ago that glory represents the radiant reputation of God. It is His image. It is His witness that goes forth in the world. We want the world to see that Jesus is Messiah. We want His glory to fill the house so that they will see. When Solomon prayed for the house, he said, uh, foreigners are going to hear about it. They're going to hear about this temple that has been built for your name. They're going to hear about your great name. They're going to hear about it because of the glory that's here. And they're going to come and they're going to marvel at what God is doing. Did that happen? It happened literally in the, with the Queen of Sheba. Now what happens? When she comes to talk to she heard about his wisdom. She wanted to meet Solomon. But when she comes, what does she, what does she marvel at? 1 Kings 10 verse 4. When the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon the house that he had built, and the food on his table, and the deportment of his servants. 
the way people conducted themselves in his household. When she saw the order of service of his attendants and their apparel, how they were dressed, and his cupbearers and the sacrifices that he offered at the house of Yahweh. There was no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. What is she marveling at? She's marveling at the house that is built by wisdom. Wisdom is the capacity to understand how the pieces go together in the design of God. And she's, she's seeing the wholeness of the whole thing. There is a whole, there's a household here. There's a nation here. There's a people here. And everything they do, from the food on the table to the clothes that they wear, to their sacrifices and worship, to the things that they build, all of it expresses the glory of God. There's wholeness here. There's unity here. There's harmony here. This feels like Jerusalem, the city of peace that's built according to God's design. Jesus said that if the queen of Sheba marveled, what should we do? I'm paraphrasing. Because he said one greater than Solomon is here. And he's building a greater house, the glory of which will be greater than the former house. Thank you, Jesus. What is the world supposed to see when they see the church? Is it, does, is it supposed to look just like the rest of the world with a Jesus sticker on it? Or is there supposed to be a kingdom, a fitly constructed house where there is order in families and relationships and a people in whom everything they do glorifies God? There was a visitor one time that came and they told us to our place in Texas and a, a brother had built a little um, culvert as a drainage ditch and he built it out of stones and he built a nice stone arch into it. And his visitor was walking by looking at this little drainage thing and they said look at this you people do everything right you care about the smallest things you know and we were hearing the queen of sheba when we heard that amen god cares about all of it now we already heard some of the passages i maybe i won't read them all that are telling us that the new testament temple is no longer made with hands god Solomon said it at the dedication of his own temple. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? 1 Kings 8, 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Isaiah said it. Where is the house you will build for me? Heaven is my throne and so forth. Stephen quotes it in Acts 7 when he's speaking to the Hebrews. Paul said, the Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands. And of course, we know, we, I, think, I think you talked about it yesterday, but when the disciples were marveling at that stone temple, look at this, you know, it's taken, was it 46 years or something to build this temple? And they were, mar look at these stones, Lord. Jesus was decidedly unimpressed. <laughs> Not one stone of that, of what man builds, is going to be left upon another. But in three days, another temple is going to be raised up. Thank you, Jesus. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Thank you, Jesus. Listen to these promises about David's kingdom. You know them, but listen to it in the context of what we're talking about today. Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. These are kingdom terms. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. God is looking for people who will be zealous for the house of God, that his kingdom might have no end, and that the increase of his government and his ordering would have no end. Luke chapter 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son in his name and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Hebrews goes and tells us in so many forms that Christ 
has not entered the holy places made with hands. Amen. That these only have the shadow of the things to come. Christ himself is the substance. Thank you, Jesus, of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. I'm skipping through various passages. Thank you, Jesus. He is the tabernacle not made with hands. Hebrews 9 and 11. John 1 and 14. The word became flesh and pitched his tabernacle among us, and we gazed upon his glory. Thank you, Jesus. Right after Jesus has cleansed the temple and said, Zeal for his house has consumed me, the Jews answered him, says, What sign do you give us? And he says, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again. Amen. He was speaking of the temple of his body. So now, that individual temple fell into the ground and died and was resurrected that it might bear much fruit and not abide alone. Amen. That temple, the singular temple of the body of Christ, now blossoms into the fruit and the flower of the corporate body of Christ on the earth. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. But Paul is God's fellow worker. That's really a phenomenal thing, that we can be workers together with God in the building of His house. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds upon it. But let each one take heed how he builds. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is, calls himself a wise master builder. In other words, God is still imparting his design to gifts among men. Amen. That he, Ephesians 4 tells us that he has ascended into heaven, but he has given gifts unto men, some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Thank you, Jesus. So God is giving gifts and ordering his house. Okay. That we might be built together into the house of God by what every joint supplies. Later in this first cha same chapter in 1 Corinthians 3 is where he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? For if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Ananias, Uzzah. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 2 Corinthians 6, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and they shall be my people. Is there a place to which we must still go? Is there a place called by his name to which we must go? Does it still require us to conform to patterns that will shape us into his image and not our own? Amen. So if we are to be saved, we have to be identified with Christ. As we heard this morning, we have to take upon his name. So we have to go to the place that is going to help us conform to the image of his son. Amen. How does that happen? Well, if you're a rock out in the field by yourself, you can enjoy your rockness all you want. There's no reason why you need to change. Because to lay out there in the field by yourself doesn't require any design. But if you would be part of the temple, then there has to be a design. Okay, there has to be likely some shaping in your life in order to fit you into the place that he has designed. If he has composed the body just as he wills, then we don't decide how we fit in that design. God has to design that. And it is when we come into relationship with the other parts that we can discern whether we are fitting, whether even we in our individual life is pleasing to God. It's God's gift to us to shape us and frame us and hone the flesh off of us that we might enter. We use the example of music a lot of times when we talk about order of relationships. And, you know, when you play one note by itself, you can imagine that it sounds great. 
But if you fit that note into a context, it doesn't work so well if it's not right. You see, he was like, oh, that one's in the wrong place. That should be here. Ah, peace returns. Okay, so it is when we come into the relationships that comprise the kingdom of God, the body of Christ that is the church, that we are discerning of how we personally must be shaped. So this is part of our own salvation. You remember Ephesians 2. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. It's a temple that grows. Is it still the place of sacrifice? That's what Peter tells us, right? When he calls us living stones and that we're being built together as a house for God, as a place for spiritual sacrifices. Or Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. This is your form of worship. The temple is still the place of sacrifice where we come. If he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for, for him in return. That's what we think it should say. But he says, if he did it for us, then we ought to do it for one another. But that is a fair return because we are his body. Amen. We are filling up in our bodies the afflictions that are still lacking in Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So our place of sacrifice is now no longer just turtle doves or, or bulls or what have you. Those were representative of the sacrifices that we are still to make, which are the greater sacrifices. The sacrifice, it, you, you know, you can, you could presumably fetch yourselves some turtle doves and bring them into the temple and get your legalistic duty over with, but God requires more than that. It's the attitude of the heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He still requires sacrifice, the sacrifice of our own will, not my will, but your will be done. He's looking for this inner chiseling and transformation that would fit us to be a house for him and have a place in the only place on earth that is called by his name to which his presence will come and salvation is found. So the temple is still the place of sacrifice, it's still the place of consecration. It's still the place where we will be conformed to his identity. It's still the place where forgiveness is found. It is still the place of salvation. And to that place we must go. Hebrews 10 and 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Thank you, Jesus. So this is his design to build us into his house. You know, in Ephesians 4, where it says there that he's given some to be apostles and prophets, that these are for the equipping of the saints. The word equipping... In the Greek, I probably won't pronounce it right, but it's katartismos, and it means right ordering or arrangement. It means to be fit or equipped, yes, but equipped by being arranged in proper order. It was a word that the Greeks used to indicate what a physician would do when they would set a bone that had been broken. Okay, and they call that process in medicine, they call that process reduction. So when something has been broken in the body and it must be mended and put back into proper order, it must go un into this process that they call reduction in order to fit the parts together. I've never had that happen because I've never broken a bone, but I'm going to take a wild guess that that is not comfortable. I'm going to guess that that hurts, 
okay? <laughs> when you've got this broken bone and, and, and God is trying to fit us back into right order, the process can be painful to the flesh, okay? The process of coming into right relationship and right order doesn't feel good to the flesh, but His design is life. His purpose is life, that we might stand up, that the bones would become a body that would stand up and be an army for the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I've already covered some of my own notes, so we'll move past that. And I'll just share one more thing. I love the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a man in exile with the people in exile. If, if you think of it as the church in our day that had once had the power, had the glory of the first temple in its spiritual fulfillment, but has been lost, carried away into Babylon, and now there are these believers stranded in Babylon only looking backwards to remember the glory that was. Amen. But something is kindling inside of this man's heart. He is not content to remain in this adulterated position. He is not content to just worship God in the circumstance that you find yourself. He has the faith and the burden to believe that you can come out of Babylon, that there's, it may look impossible, but God is going to make a way. What drives this in him? I think we could say zeal for his house. <laughs> was inside of Nehemiah. And you remember how he was, that he was he was in the king's court and and it says that his face was was downcast and sad and the king had to ask him about it. You know, in that context, this is not just, you know, hey, are you feeling all right today? <laughs> that was not how it was. Historians tell us that in the in the context of the Persian courts there, uh, everybody there was enforced happiness. Everybody had to be happy or you got your head chopped off. That'll make you happy. And so something is so troubling Nehemiah that even in this context, he is under the weight of what is not, of what must become again. He is under the weight of it. And so even there, he just can't bring himself to be happy in that context. Brother Ossie read earlier from Isaiah 62, Nehemiah would have known this prophecy. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a blazing torch. Later in the same chapter, he says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silenced day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Do we feel that way about the church, about the kingdom of God, the embassy from heaven? He would have known this was a psalm that came about in the captivity. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. Amen. You have to be. Come on. Are there not a lot of voices in the world today saying, what's wrong with you? Be happy where you are in Babylon. We can sing the songs of Zion in Babylon. We can worship God in the high places. You don't have to be that serious about it. You don't have to care and be so particular about God's design. Just be happy where you are. But how can we sing the songs of Yahweh in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, that's what the other voices are telling us. Just forget it. It's, it's something that was and can never be again. It's a pipe dream. But if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Something burned in Nehemiah's heart. We've got to build it back. So he prays to God and he says, 
we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There are still sheep of God scattered to the corners of the earth. Amen. But God still has a place for us. And so Nehemiah achieves the miraculous. God smiles on the zeal that is in his heart. And with the prophets, they go to rebuild. Listen to this passage from Haggai, and I'm almost done. Haggai was one of the prophets that went along to help rebuild. Speak now to Zerubbabel. You know what that means? Zerubbabel. It means seed out of Babel. Spirit of Exodus. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you says Yahweh of hosts. Thank you, Jesus. And it goes on down to say, I will again fill this temple with glory. And the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the first. Thank you, Jesus. Zechariah was also a contemporary prophet. And he speaks about the same people, Joshua and all of this. And he says specifically, these men are symbolic of things to come. Thank you, Jesus. When another high priest named Yeshua is going to come and build the final temple. Somebody asked about it yesterday. Is there going to be a third temple? Yes, there is. <laughs> there is a third temple, and it's not made with hands. Zechariah 4 and 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is the last passage I'll read. Not by might, nor by power. Hallelujah. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. There's nothing that God will not do to make the way for those who are willing to come out and rebuild the house of God. And he shall bring forth the capstone. Amen. When the house comes back together, Peter said in Acts that the heavens shall receive Jesus until the time of the restoration of all things. He's waiting for the church to be composed and built according to pattern. He shall bring forth the capstone, if we would just line up with the cornerstone and the foundation of Jesus Christ himself and the apostles and the prophets, amen, and line up and let the temple grow in God as each part does its share, then the capstone is going to return. He shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? If we would care about it, if we would pay attention to every word, that no word of the Lord would fall to the ground, Amen. That we would count it as valuable and precious because it's rare in our day. But we would determine in our hearts, not one word is going to fall to the ground. I will not despise the day of small things. I'm not going to tell God what to speak to me or what. That's, I'm waiting for the big thing. I'm going to follow his voice no matter what it is. I'm going to be a son of Abraham. If he talks to me about my marriage, I'll start there. How can you rule the household of God if your own household is not in order? Paul tells us. Okay, so this order for design has everything to do with parents and children and husbands and wives and the gifts and the callings of brothers and sisters in the church. 
and the honor that we have for God's pattern in all of those things. Who has despised the day of small things? But these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Which in Second Chronicles, he says the same thing about the eyes of the Lord going to and fro throughout the whole earth. For what purpose? To strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. For those whom the zeal for his house is consuming them. God himself is going to be with us to strengthen us. Those who will rejoice to see the plumb line. The plumb line is the device by which we measure the accuracy of the design and how lined up we are to the cornerstone of faith. Thank you, Jesus. So the reductions are going to hurt. They're going to hurt. The chiseling is going to be painful. God is fitting us for his purpose. He's lining us up to the cornerstone. He's making us a habitation for his glory that Jerusalem would be the praise of the whole earth. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody feeling something on your heart? Let's just worship the Lord and thank Him. Thank you, Jesus, God, for the privilege, God, of being part of your house. Instill in your people the zeal to see it accomplished, God, not for our glory, but for your glory, that the world may know that you have been sent by God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, God. Let it be according to your plan and design. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.